My name is Merle, and I serve as one of the elders here at FBC, and today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Psalm 45, 6 through 9. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, as anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophrah. You may be seated. Thanks, Merle. We're going to be in Psalm 45 this morning, so if you want to turn in your copy of Scripture to Psalm 45, you're welcome to follow along with us there. If you don't have a copy of Scripture for your own, there is one in one of the chairs around you. There's baskets under some of the chairs, and there is a Bible there. You are welcome to use that. You're also welcome to keep it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or you know someone who needs one, you're welcome to take one of those and keep it. Join me as we pray and ask God for his help as we look at his word this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We are grateful for the book of Psalms and for Psalm 45. Our prayer is this morning, God, that you would do a work by your spirit in our hearts through your word. Give us a willingness, God, to allow you to draw us to repentance and encourage our hearts with the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 45. At the beginning, it says this. It's the heading of the psalm. I'll read it if you don't have it there in front of you. To the choir master, according to lilies, a maskil, of the songs of the sons of Korah, a love song. So it gives us some musical annotations there, according to lilies. I have no idea what lilies is. It could have been a melody. It could have been a drum beat. It could have been his favorite painting. I don't know. It's also a maskil, which is a kind of a thing, kind of a musical thing. We don't know precisely what it is. So you can imagine whatever melody you want as you read it. But this is a song, in particular a song of the sons of Korah. And it is a, it's a love song. I don't know what your favorite love song is. Uh, and I'm not asking for suggestions. It may have been by... Uh, any of a number of singers. My guess is your favorite love song has something to do with when you uh, were born. Usually our favorite love song has something to do with whatever the song was at the time that we really enjoyed when maybe you met a special someone. So it might have been Whitney Houston. It might have been um, Elvis Presley. Who? Richard Marks. It might have been Rick Astley, for all I know. Come on. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. I just wanted to rickroll the entire congregation. That's all I want to do. So what it is, is these songs are connected with events in our life. They bring back memories. And in fact, these songs bring back emotions. If you hear your, uh, a song that's connected with a significant uh, 
emotion, there's nothing that can replace that. In fact, one pastor said it this way, there's a, a whole group of individuals who got saved during a war in a foxhole. You ever had, you know what, you're sitting in a foxhole and you're, there's two ways out of this foxhole. We walk out or I'm carried out. And in that moment, you decide if I'm gonna get carried out, I wanna go to heaven. And so a person gets saved. And then they survive that foxhole and they go and they see the chaplain and they go to a choir service and, and there's a service and a hymn is sung. Whatever hymn it might have been. It might have been uh, How Great Thou Art. It might have been Amazing Grace. It might have been any number of hymns that were sung. So tell me, for that individual, will there ever be a song greater than that song? Absolutely not. This is connected to a significant life event. So love songs are the same way. There's a significant life event that happens when we're younger and all of a sudden there's a love song that moves in our hearts. And this song is a love song for the marriage of the king of Israel. For the marriage of the king of Israel. And, and it celebrates the love of the king. We don't know which king it is. We would assume it likely is one of the sons of David in the line of David. And it's a song that was written likely to be performed at this king's wedding. We might think of it this way. This psalm really is a shorter, more family-friendly version of the Song of Solomon. It's to celebrate the love of the king for his bride. But here's what we're going to discover about this love song, this marriage song. At the end of the day, this love song celebrating the marriage of the king is all about the Lord. It's all about the Lord. In fact, without the Lord, this song is never written. So we're going to look at this psalm, Psalm 45, in two parts. First, we're going to, in the first part, we're going to look at the psalm in detail. We're just going to go through the verses. We're going to look at the psalm and understand what the psalm is telling us about the king, about his bride, and about the work of God among his people. The second part of our message, I want to show you how the psalm is really all about the work of God among his people from Genesis to Revelation. And how this is not merely a love song for the king and his bride, it's a love song for God and his people, past, present, and future. So, let's look at Psalm 45. Wedding day, the marriage of a king. When you think of a wedding day, there's a lot of things that go into planning for a wedding. It's a celebration of a marriage relationship. But I wanna, I, maybe this doesn't happen anymore nowadays, and, and if it's out of line, but, well, that's just how I roll. Weddings are also a place for people to, to display um, how successful they have been in life, right? You know, so it's an opportunity to let people know, you know what, I've done pretty well, and so I can put on a certain kind of party. Now, certainly nobody in present company excluded, right? But sometimes it, it, weddings can be kind of over the top. And the idea here is not merely to celebrate the relationship of bride and groom. It's to celebrate success, prosperity. Now, this psalm is really no different. But the difference is it's not a sort of egotistical celebration of prosperity. Instead, it's a celebration of the blessing of God who keeps his covenant promises to his people. And so we're going to see in this wedding psalm some over-the-top expressions of prosperity. And the intention is to draw our focus to God. Because the joy of the king's wedding was not because he met the right misses someone. The joy of the king's wedding was due to God's faithfulness to keep his promises 
to his son, King David. The reason this king could have this glorious wedding was due to God's faithfulness because the kingdom endures and is blessed because of what God is doing among his people. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read them of Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Verse 4, in your majesty write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. The celebration here is of the king, and this is a victorious king, a son of King David, the most victorious of the kings. And so he is experiencing the blessing of being God's appointed king for God's appointed people. Why is this king victorious? Because he's awesome? No. He's victorious because God keeps his promises to King David. Remember, God made a promise to King David. In 2 Samuel 7, when David wanted to build a temple for God, God said, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Your son will sit on your throne forever. Your kingdom will last for all of time. So God makes his promise to the king that his son will sit on the throne of Israel for all of time. And so now this king, a son of King David, is experiencing the blessing of what it means for God to keep his promises. He is one who is pleasing because he is experiencing God's blessing. He's described as one who is victorious. Look at verse uh, 3 and 4. Gird your sword on your thigh. Verse 4. In majesty, ride out victoriously. We talked about this briefly last week. Remember, King Saul killed his thousands and King David killed his tens of thousands. The people of Israel desperately wanted a king who would ride out and lead them into victory. That's what they told, king, that's what they told Samuel. We want a king. We want somebody who will ride out and lead us into victory. And so King David led their armies out into victory. Why was King David so victorious? Because he was a great warrior? Absolutely not. King David was victorious because God kept his promises to King David. And now this king is experiencing the blessing of God leading him in his victory. A king who is trusting God and God who is blessing this king because it is God's kingdom. It is God's people. It's not the king's people. It's not the king's kingdom. The one whose people this is, is God. And, and when the king presses into and leans into and trusts in God, God blesses the king as he goes out into victory. And this wedding is celebrating a victorious king. But we have to remember this king would not be victorious if it wasn't for the Lord. And that's why this psalm is about the Lord. This king is simply being used by God to establish God's purposes among his people. So the king is a celebration of God and his blessing. Verses 6 through 9, Merle already read it. I'm going to read it again because I saw a number of you not paying attention. <laughs> Actually, I'm kidding. It's always good to repeat. 
And if it bothers you that we read the Bible in church, I don't know what to tell you. That's it's church. What do you think we're going to do? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter, the scepter of your kingdom, is a scepter of uprightness. Whose kingdom is it? It says right there. It's not the king's. It's God's kingdom. Verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. Your throne, O God is forever and ever. This king's throne is not forever and ever. This king, no matter how good a king he is, at some point is going to retire. You know how kings retire. It's a funeral. So your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then he says uh, to the king, the scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you. So two audiences, he's saying, God's throne is forever and ever, and this king is blessed and anointed because he has loved God's righteousness. So it's God's kingdom, and this king is experiencing the blessing of his kingdom because he is pursuing the kingdom God's way. God's kingdom is everlasting. The splendor of this king's realm is only the result of God honoring his covenant to his people. And the splendor of his realm, of this king's realm, is described in very uh, big terms. His robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes, cassia. That's a fancy way of saying he wore really good deodorant. <laughs> Ivory palaces. So these, these well-appointed, luxurious palaces. And, and these luxurious palaces, unfortunately, did not have... Apple music and stereo systems. But this king did not go without music. If he was awake, music was playing. And that means it was a palace filled with live musicians providing music that made his heart glad. This is, this is the blessing of God's kingdom on his people. And in fact, the daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. The glory of this kingdom is such that other kings would send their daughters just to hang out to be among this guy's court. Not lesser than princesses or daughters of generals or marketplace or merchants. Those, those were also rands in this kingdom. In this kingdom, a person found in the court of this king was likely a daughter of another king. That's how grand this guy's kingdom is. At your right hand stands the queen dressed in gold. That sounds heavy. It means she is adorned with jewelry and her, her robes are adorned with gold. This is very, very over-the-top, expensive, luxurious living. And it's not done to express some kind of egotistical, look how I have done. What this is is people saying, look what God has done when he keeps his promises. That's what this is a celebration of. This is a celebration of God keeping his promises. When you read what Moses said to his people in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, look, look, if you will follow me and you will trust God, he will provide you blessing. One of you will chase a thousand and a thousand of you will chase 10,000 
and, and you will never have need of a poor person in your kingdom because God is, is going to bless this kingdom. And that's what we're seeing in the life of this king. This isn't merely the celebration of a really, really wealthy king. What is it? It's a celebration of God who has kept his promises to his son, David. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. How deserving of this blessing was this king? He wasn't. How deserving was David of God's blessing? David wasn't deserving. I think the Bible describes David as a sinner. We have a couple of instances where David sinned, but David needed for God to redeem him from his sins as every other person did. No matter how good a king might be, and we might think of some really, really good kings that came after David. We've got Jehoshaphat. We've got Hezekiah, one of the books of the Bible. The rest of you are like, oh, I haven't read that one. Look at the table of contents. Very hard to find. Um, you've got Josiah. We love Josiah, don't we? He's amazing. We've got all these really, really good kings. But did any of these kings, no matter how good they were, did they deserve God's favor? The answer is no. Because no one deserves God's favor. So what we see here is we see the glory of the kingdom because of a king who is trusting God, but God who is just going over the top in blessing because that's what he is like even to those who don't deserve it. God's kingdom is everlasting and the splendor of this particular king's realm is only the result of God keeping his promises. God's glory is great. Let's look at verses 10 through 15. I'm going to read them for you. He's now speaking to the bride. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow, down to, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. He says to this bride, hero daughter, forget your people and your father's house. He, to wed the king is to leave home and go to another home. He is not saying that she should betray her family or her beginnings, but what he is saying is for this bride to consider where she has been and where she is going. Think of King David. What was King David's occupation before he was king? Shepherd. And how high on the list was he of possible kings? When Samuel showed up at his house, he asked David's dad, bring your sons out and I'm going to anoint one of them king. He brings his sons, except for one, the scrawny one, David. Doesn't even call him in. That's how, how much his dad thought of him. Nice. David is made king. The one psalm, in fact, says, David, I have called you out of the sheepfold into the kingdom as king. And so we're seeing this same kind of contrast for this particular bride. He is saying, look, you are leaving your home and going to the king's home. And when you compare those two, there's a significant contrast between where you have come from and you were where you were going to. It doesn't matter how well appointed her life was, where she is going is much, much, much better. And what he is saying is, to go into the home of the king is to leave behind your old life. And maybe she is having some reservations. See, well, I love my, my home and my, 
my, where my parents live. And he tries to explain to the bride where she is going. Look what she, he says. Now, let's look at verse 11 because it bothered some of you. The king will desire your beauty. Bow to him. Now, of course, culturally, this makes us squirm a little bit. But this is not unusual. He is, in fact, a king. And so there is a sense that he is both husband and king. There is there's just a sense here. She is going to uh, the house of the, the palace. This is her husband, but he is the king. Verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. Where is Tyre? Tyre's on the coast. It's a merchant city. In fact, we might even suggest one of the most successful merchant cities. What does this mean of the kingdom of Tyre? This is where the really, really, really wealthy people live, of that place. This is where all of the people made all of the money because they were trading through ships all over the world. So anybody who had any money whatsoever was invested in, in trading in Tyre, and that's where all the money was. And he is saying, look, the city of Tyre is going to come to you with the richest of gifts. So that's like somebody getting married in Medford. You're familiar with this city. And marrying somebody to such a degree that the, the mayor of New York City is getting some of the, the most wealthy and important people of New York City to come and bring gifts. You're like, wait, it's just Medford. We're just small potatoes compared to this large and influential port city. And that's what he's saying to this bride. He said, look, the most important people in the wealthiest city are going to be seeking your favor by bringing you wedding gifts. And, and so you want to say goodbye to your old life and say hello to your, your new life with the king. To wed the king is to leave your home, to leave your past. The glory of what is gained far surpasses that which is lost because joy is found in the household of the king. Let's look at the last two verses. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So, as this bride leaves her home and goes into the place of her new home, marriage to the king, Normally, an individual, a son or daughter, they would establish their place in culture based on their relationship with their dad. You see this throughout your Bible, Old and New Testament. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so. My place in my community is established by the place of my father. And this bride has said, no, 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 something has changed with you, which is surprising. Your sons will have a greater name for you than your father ever would have. Your heritage is not going to come from where you came from, even though that's normally the way it would be. I have a connection with my community because of how important my dad was. People are going to say of this bride, she mattered because of who her sons were. This is a legacy that she will leave. In fact, he says in verse 17, I'll cause your name to be remembered in all generations, because your sons will be princes in all the earth. So a participation in this kingdom is a perpetual kingdom. Her fruit and reward will never end because her glory is found in wedding to the king. The glory of her sons will surpass 
that which she had from her father. And that's what the author is saying, listen, leave your past. It's not to, to shun it or to abandon it. It's not to say, don't talk to your dad. I say, where are you going to find your identity? In what you were before or what you are now? And he's simply saying, listen, bride, make your identity in the glory of the kingdom you are now connected to through your marriage. Wedding day, marriage of the king. All right, we've got through the psalm and you thought we we're done. We're not even halfway. Here we go. When we look at the rest of Scripture, we find out that we get to participate in the wedding that this psalm describes. When we look at the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we find out that we have the opportunity to participate in the wedding that this psalm describes. I don't know if you've been to any weddings recently, but there is something that goes on at weddings sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes there is a slideshow. And sometimes it's in the wedding ceremony itself. Sometimes it is uh, at the reception. Now, it's nice when it's at the reception because then you get to eat while you watch it. It's kind of handy. So what is the slideshow show? Most of the time, these kinds of slideshow, and some of you are taking notes. Okay, this is helpful wedding planning information. What it shows is the bride and the groom. And it usually starts, and you can figure out how long the slideshow is going to be based on how quickly they age in the first few pictures. <laughs> I go, okay, this is going to be a long one. It's been 10 pictures, and we're still at the hospital. <laughs> so what happens is you've got these, first the pictures start off usually kind of going back and forth between the bride and groom, their infancy, their childhood, and there's some chuckles, and oh, look at what he looked like back then. And the slideshow kind of progresses along until suddenly, and for those of us who have short attention spans like me, it means we're getting towards the end, suddenly the pictures have both people in them. Okay, now we've gone from their separate lives in the past, and now all of a sudden, their life has come together, and we can see what, how they met, and maybe first aid, and what they enjoy doing together. And, and, and the slideshow, what it does, is we're sitting at a wedding, and you might be saying, well, what brought these two people together? How did this happen? And the slideshow answers that question to some degree. It shows in pictures how we went from two different people from two different lives, into one life that is coming together. The glory of this wedding that we're reading about in Psalm, this Psalm 45, as we will see, is the glory of Christ's wedding. And what we get to see is how we went from being separate to how we become connected. How, we, how Christ has a wedding with his people because of his faithfulness to keep his covenants. And in fact, the reason we're able to come together is because Jesus shed his own blood for his bride. Let's start in Hebrews chapter 1. I know, I can tell you, start in Hebrews chapter 1. Didn't start happen a while ago? You're all right. Hebrews chapter 1, I'm going to get to verse 8 in a minute. It's up on the screen, but I want to start in verse 1 of Hebrews 1. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, of course, is all about patient endurance for the believers and the argument is we can endure patiently through trials and tribulations because Jesus is, in fact, that awesome. And Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, I know I like the King James better too, in diverse ways and sundry matters. That's a, that's a whenever you can read sundry in the Bible, that's fun. In many, uh, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Good, you're with me. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we're talking about the son. 
the son through whom, God's son, who, who created all that is. Hebrews 1, verse 8. Of the son, he says, quoting from Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He continues in verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here's what's interesting about this section that he's quoting from Psalm 45. In those two little verses in Psalm 45, the psalmist talks about God and about the king who's getting married. And Hebrews, what does he do? He says, both of those are the same person. He says, God, the king who's getting married. He said, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus is the son who's getting married. Jesus is the king who is getting married. Here's a section of scripture you're fairly familiar with. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I know you're not allowed to read this if it's not December, but we're going to do it anyway. It's just how we roll here. We're rule breakers. All the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. Jesus, born son of David, firstborn son of David in Bethlehem. What does that make him? That makes him king. It makes him king of his people. He is king of his people. Jesus is the son, the king, who is to be married, but he's not born into glory. He is born to fulfill all the promises that God has made to his people. He's not born into the glory of his kingdom. He is born to fulfill all of the promises that God has made to his people. So when we're looking at this slideshow, we're saying, well, what has God done? God has come not in glory to redeem his people, and he is the king who is to be married. Now, let's look at the bride. Let's look at her slideshow for a minute. Now, this is not a very good slideshow and, and wouldn't be appropriate to show at a wedding, but let's do it nonetheless. Ezekiel 16. Some of you read Ezekiel 16 and can't believe I'm about to read it out loud. I'm not going to read the whole thing, and I am going to do some editing in the event that we have some young people here. You can read Ezekiel 16 on your own. That'll keep you awake. Some of you say the Bible is boring. You have not read Ezekiel 16. <laughs> Ezekiel was a prophet to the people of Israel after they had been conquered by Babylon and they were living in, in Babylon and Ezekiel was trying to explain to them why they had been captured by the Babylonians. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother, a Hittite. He's talking about Abraham. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. 
No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. This is the beginning of the bride. And when I, this is God, when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your own blood. That's gross. I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, what? Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. You see a bit of a reference there to Ruth and Boaz, don't you? I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and I shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and chain on your neck. I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. What does this sound like? Does this sound like the bride in Psalm 45? It should. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. I'm going to let you read the rest of that chapter on your own. It goes downhill from there. Then and now, God's people, his bride, are redeemed out of slavery to sin. God redeemed his people. Could his people save themselves? No, they're described as a baby who had been discarded at birth. A baby discarded at birth cannot save themselves. And that imagery you find shocking and repulsive, and we ought to, but we have to recognize what sin does to people. That's what it does. And God says, I redeemed my people, not because they deserved it, they didn't, not because they could save themselves. They, at that point, did not even know they needed to be redeemed out, redeemed out of slavery. So God is saying, not only did I save you when you didn't know you needed it, I saved you and cleaned you and made you my own and made you my bride. And then not only that, he gave this bride Glory, And when you think of the history of Israel, that's what it is, redeemed out of Egypt, walked through the wilderness, into the promised land, conquering, and then imagine everything that God did for his people really culminating in the reign of King Solomon. And God is saying, I redeemed you. You became mine because of my faithfulness to keep my covenant promises to you. That continues on for those of us who call ourselves Christians among the body of Christ today. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul is talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, how? With his own blood. So the bride of Christ, his church, his people, was purchased by his own blood. So when we look at the imagery of Israel in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 16, 
In the church in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 20, it's the same imagery. God redeems sinners who don't know they need to be saved, and it's God who, who faithfully keeps his promises. Jesus redeems us out of our sin and rebellion through the shedding of his own blood, and we become the bride of Christ, his church. There's another verse in the New Testament that talks about Jesus as a husband and his work with his bride, and it's Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. This is a place where the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the imagery of a marriage to illustrate how God works with his people. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So how did this couple meet? You've got Jesus, who is the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of all things, living in glory as king of all that is, and then you have his bride, who needs to be redeemed from her own rebellion and sin. So we see in Acts and we see in Ephesians 5, the same process we saw in Ezekiel 16. The son redeeming his bride by his own blood, and then what does he do even after he redeems her in verse, 20, verse 26? He sanctifies her and cleanses her with the washing of the word. Just like in the Old Testament, God is the one who purifies his people with his word. God takes us from lost to saved, and those of us God has redeemed by his grace from saved to like Jesus. And God does it all for us because he keeps his promises to his people. This is the marriage of the son. Where is this wedding going? Last verse, I think. I make no promises. Revelation 19. Everybody gets excited when we get to Revelation. Revelation 19. Where is this wedding going? John says, I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. When the, the wedding, when it does finally arrive, is going to be full of joy and excitement. And the joy is from knowing where we came from. And how much God loved us to get us ready for the occasion. So we see two things happening at the same time. It was granted of her to, to be clothed in fine linen. The righteous deeds of the saints. So on the one hand, you have individuals as an act of worship to God, glorifying God by pursuing righteousness in their own life. But the reality is, even the righteous deeds of the saints are the work of God. He is the one giving us the power by his spirit to express worship through righteousness and clothe ourselves with fine linen. None of us are going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb wearing fine white linen saying we earned it. 
we're going to look at the fine white linen we are wearing and saying, Christ granted it. And it's only by his grace we could be prepared for the occasion. Wedding day, marriage of the king, is really the wedding of the son. Three quick uh, questions for you to think about, and then we're going to wrap it up if you don't mind. Well, I think we're going to sing another song, so don't get too hasty. Every one of us in Christ share the same story. He saved us when we were not worth saving. He saved us when we were not savable. He saved us when we didn't want to be saved. He loved us anyway. Some of us like to think that Jesus married us because we were hot. We had something to offer. We bring something to his kingdom. I would like to remind you, the best way to think of yourselves before, think of ourselves before redeemed by Christ is Ezekiel 16 in the middle of a field. Too young to know what's up, not realizing how dead we really, really are. That's the beginning of our relationship with God. God walking through and finding us and saying, I, because I'm a promise-keeping kind of God, will redeem you out of your wallowing. Cleanse you from your own filthiness through my own blood. That's where we find ourselves. If someone is here today and doesn't know Christ, you need to recognize that many people think they can't know Jesus because they just simply are too far gone. And the Bible understands how far gone you are much better than you do. And to encounter Christ is it's just really not to realize how bad you are, but to realize that he is the kind of king that saves people no matter what. Not because we deserve it, but because he saves people who need saving. All of us share the same story with Jesus, what, in our relationship with Jesus, whether we were saved when we were very, very young, or we were saved after we had a testimony that we could, we could write a book about. Either way, all of us are in the same condition, lost without Jesus till he moves us to that place where we say, I need forgiveness because he died for me. Those of us who are in Christ might need to consider this as we imagine and understand who our groom is. Where does our purpose and significance come from? The bride in Psalm 45 was reminded that her personal significance and her purpose is not going to come from the home that she grew up in. It's going to come from the home she is joining because of the glory of the king. Personal achievement, that's short term. God's blessing in our life because we're a part of his kingdom that never ends. A person who understands their groom is Christ will recognize my significance and my importance and my purpose comes from I have a relationship with the living God. So how do I live my life as a believer if I want my significance and purpose to be flowing out of a relationship with the glory of Christ and his kingdom? Say, you know what, there's a wedding day coming up. I would like to be wearing some nice clothes that day. What do you think? And if that's the case, what I want to do today is I want to worship God by turning my life over to him and being about his kingdom and not my own. It's to say God is, is going to work in me and I want to be made ready for that day. And so I'm going to worship God and say, you know what, my life and purpose and significance, I want it connected with Christ and his kingdom not my own personal uh, kingdom. 
So Jesus saves us. And Jesus, through the balance of our Christian life, makes us ready for the great wedding day. But our hope is certain. There is a day coming where we will enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb. My favorite story about the wedding feast of the Lamb is Pastor Jeff's testimony. I didn't ask his permission, so Jeff, I, I apologize. He was excited because he heard there's going to be watermelon at the uh, wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, for those of us, now I know this is rare. I don't like watermelon. Somebody not, I just is a poll. Anybody else not like watermelon? It's just, oh, no, I got a couple of people. I get, no, watermelon makes gag reflex kind of not like watermelon. So Jeff was moved to recognize he needed a relationship with God because there's going to be watermelon at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That would have kept me out. It's like, oh, there's watermelon? I got better places to be than there. Our hope in, in the future is certain. This, this feast that is coming is going to come. That's where our hope is. We, haven't, we, we can enjoy our relationship with God and we ought to enjoy our relationship with God. We need to recognize the culmination of our relationship with God is one day, not today. The culmination of our relationship with God is not because you heard my prayer and I got a good parking space. The culmination of my relationship with God is not, cannot be attached to the temporary things of this world. God expresses his kindness to us in the temporary things of his world, this world. Our hope, though, is in a whole other world. It's a whole other thing. This is a short-lived, temporary place for us to express faith in God till we get to that place. That's where our hope is. The story of every believer is Ezekiel 16, lost in a field, to Revelation 19, sitting down and having supper with the lamb. Close with this. A lack of urgency in our spiritual life reveals. A lack of urgency in our personal spiritual life reveals. I think where I came from was better than it was and I think where I'm going isn't as good as the Bible says. A lack of urgency says, you know, I wasn't that bad. And a lack of urgency says, you know, heaven's good, but actually, I got it pretty good here. A lack of urgency says, where I came from was better than it actually was. And where I'm going isn't as good as the Bible makes it out to be. Whereas a person who, by the power of the Spirit, recognizes how dead we were in without Christ and how good a kingdom we have in Christ, we are moved by God's Spirit to have a sense of urgency to be ready for that day not just today. A wedding day is coming. The marriage of the king and a marriage of the son. God, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ that he would die on the cross for sinners like us. God, I would pray for the individuals who are here this morning who don't know you by faith. They have not repented of their sin and trusted Jesus for forgiveness. And I would pray in this moment that this would be the moment where you have found them in a field and they would turn to you for salvation. It's simply a matter of trusting you for forgiveness. And we can even pray it and say, Jesus, I trust you that what you did on the cross takes care of my sin. And you rose from the dead to give me new life. God, the reality is many of us have believers, uh, are believers here this morning and... We would never say it out loud, but we feel like we needed a little bit of salvation. 
God, our prayer is your Holy Spirit through your word this morning might open our eyes to how badly we needed to be saved. You would open our eyes to the fact that we can't make ourselves righteous. We still need Jesus today. And you would open our eyes to the glory of the kingdom that is yet to come. God, give us a sense of urgency to worship you with our lives in anticipation of the glory of your King. We thank you for Jesus and can't wait till you come back. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand up with us as we close with a song.